Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm awfully excited that I have Beverly Canaris in the studio. We're going to bring her on in just a minute. But I've got my Bible open right now to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 14. It says, The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. And then 16 is a big one. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. That's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about the mind of Christ. Beverly Canaris has been uh, teaching Bible Study Fellowship for over 30 years. She's now retired, but still loves to uh, teach God's Word, mentor and share her joy that she has in the Lord with everyone, including us today. Bev, welcome. Thank you. So nice to be here, Bill. Just a small little topic today, huh? It's a small one, but I think we can cover it in the time we have allotted. I do too. Mm -hmm. I do too. I think we just need to get the big idea here, and we're going to actually take it verse by verse, so it's not going to be so hard. It's going to be in context. It's not going to be just hunting and picking a verse out of Scripture like sometimes we do, but then we often make errors. So we're going to put it in the context of the entire chapter because it is the last verse of chapter 2. So it really does, all of the verses 1 through 16 kind of belong together as a unit. So we're going to pick out those key truths, and then that really helps us to culminate with that that amazing truth, having the mind of Christ. Um, I think this really begs two important questions. The first one would be, who has the mind of Christ? Who are they talking about there? And also, what does that mean? And how is that even possible, right? Yeah. That's a very large statement there. So we want to turn to our key text here this afternoon, um, where the mind of Christ is mentioned, and see if we can get some insight. Bill, I appreciate you reading those last few verses of the chapter. Uh, the, the main point for today is for who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. To me, that's a promise. This is such a stunning statement, having the mind of Christ. This is really a statement that's a summary of these 15 preceding v- verses. And so we're going to go and we're going to look at these in chapter 2. The Apostle Paul is the one who is writing here this part of the Bible under the guidance of the Spirit of God. And he is writing to the church in Corinth, in Greece. Paul begins by telling the Corinthians that when he came to them, he came in weakness and in wanting to know and communicate nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. In other words, the gospel. Um, It is such a mistake for the church to get off of the central topic, and that is Christ crucified and raised from the dead, or the gospel. When we go to current events, politics, psychology, 
They're never to be the center stage. That's not what the world needs from the church. The world needs the gospel most of all. And so Paul came to the Corinthians with that thinking, that mindset. See, when the church deviates from that kind of a central message, it's going to cause confusion, division, and it's not going to be having the help and helping people to be rescued from the sins in this world if we continue just to focus on things of the world. The things he brings out, um, he brings out about himself here is that he didn't want them putting their faith in him, a mere human. He wanted to keep the message simple and pure and to the point. Um, they, that they would experience his teaching really as a demonstration of the Holy Spirit and not something originated with him. Paul was not a salesman. Uh, he, was looking to, he wasn't looking to make a name for himself. Having the mind of Christ is really having a humble attitude that points to the glory of God. The mind of Christ serves with much effort and excellence, yet having the mind of Christ is not solely dependent on self. We are to be dependent on the Holy Spirit to who alone can change lives. In my many years of teaching the Bible, I looked at this scripture, having the mind of Christ, and I looked at it so often and I took it as a promise. I felt so inept so often uh, to teach this holy word of God and to interpret it to others. So this was really a really a confidence booster for me. It gave me strength and security and helped me to trust him as I stepped out in faith to do that. Well, next, in all the rest of these verses, we're going to take a deep dive into contrasting the wisdom of the world with the wisdom that comes from God. Remember, we're talking about the mind of Christ. So the mind of Christ is the wisdom from God, and the world has its own wisdom. Paul goes on to write, We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature Christians. In other words, those growing in the knowledge of God who have the Spirit, but not wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. So what's he really saying there? He's really saying there that the wisdom of this world apart from God will all come to nothing. However, then he goes on to say, no, we declare God's wisdom a mystery that has been hidden, that God has destined for our glory before time began. So the Apostle Paul is saying here that he's not sharing what the world thinks is wisdom, but a different wisdom that comes from God and revealed by God in his way and his time. Now, you might be wondering about that word mystery. When the New Testament speaks of a mystery, it really means a truth hidden in the past ages now revealed to the people of God. This, of course, is the gospel. It is veiled in the Old Testament, but yet it's there. In every chapter of the Bible, we can see a reflection of the, of the gospel. When your spiritual eyes are opened and when you have the mind of Christ, you will see it. Now, next, Paul says that the rulers of this age would have never crucified Christ had they understood that all of this mystery, instead of getting rid of the problem of Jesus, they actually furthered God's plan for Christ of his death, his resurrection. The rulers of this age probably refer to the religious leaders, also the political leaders like Pilate and Herod. They didn't have the mind of Christ, so they couldn't know this mystery. However, God's people who have the mind of Christ do because the mind of Christ is given to them by the Spirit of God through faith in Christ. You know, you often hear this next verse at funerals, but it's really, let's take it as a promise for us today, for those of us who have 
the wisdom from God, the mind of Christ in us through the Holy Spirit. What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. So here's what that means. When we receive Christ through faith in him, at the same time, the Spirit of God opens our eyes spiritually. I have witnessed this, Bill, so many times with women as I've seen them come into Bible study, frustrated. They can't understand it. It's so hard. But then they have a, a, an awakening, a spiritual revival, a, a new birth, and they, they, they go from not having the mind of Christ to having the mind of Christ. They persevere, and the Spirit opens their spiritual eyes. The Bible comes alive to them. Now they can see what God has prepared for them, a life of faith in Christ, a life of amazing depth and richness in knowing God and experiencing a security in this life and the next through that relationship with Christ. A person whose eyes have been opened through the indwelling Holy Spirit has the mind of Christ to see the wonders, blessings they will receive through Christ in this life and in the next. Well, verses 10 through 15 in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 give us some excellent teaching on the Holy Spirit. And this is the connection between the mind of Christ. It's the Holy Spirit. He is the one who has the mind of Christ that gives us the mind of Christ. The Holy Spirit is often not known, so he's not really understood. But our salvation in Christ includes all three members of the Trinity. Father planned our salvation. Jesus provided that salvation through his atoning death for sin and then his resurrection. And the Holy Spirit, he has such a key role, is the one who makes our salvation and knowledge of God a reality in our lives. The Spirit convicts us of our sin and our need for salvation and gives us then his Spirit to live within us so that we too can have the mind of Christ. So it's essential understanding who the Spirit is in order to understand what it means to have that mind of Christ. Should we go on? I think we'll take a little break. This yeah, is, that's a uh, lot. Let's take it, a breather. It is a lot. I, I love... <laughs> think about that. No, I mean, doesn't, I think, doesn't Paul quote Isaiah 40? I think it's Isaiah 40, 13, um, when it makes a statement concerning that we have the mind of Christ. I think that's where it comes out of the Old Testament as well. Pretty sure. Anyway, just a thought I had, but I'll do the research uh, during the break, see if I can't come it up with that. It does say in my notes here, oh, does Isaiah 40, okay, 13. Good. Okay, good. All right. Well, right on oh, once here again. We go. Here we yeah, go. I get lucky once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> we'll take a little break. We're talking to Beverly Canaris, talking about the mind of Christ. Um, and I think if you understand the mind of Christ, you, you understand God's plan in the world to bring glory to himself and salvation to sinners. We'll take a short break and be right back. Canaris is my guest. We're talking about the mind of Christ, and she's doing a great job of telling us some truths concerning the mind of Christ. 
Well, we really have a, a wonderful chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that really leads us through the thought process of what it is to have the mind of Christ. So we're all the way up to verse 10 now. If you missed the first half, you can always do the podcast, but we're starting in verse 10, and verse 10 says, The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So having the Spirit of God in us as believers, we have the mind of Christ. We know the thoughts. So through the Holy Spirit, we can get a grasp of who God is. We can understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. Scripture opens up to us to reveal these deep things. I just have to ask our listeners right now, do you know if you have the Spirit of God within you? Have the scriptures been illuminated for your understanding, or do you find them a constant source of frustration? Are you daily seeking God in his word? Here is where you discover the deep things of God. Deep things, but yet even a child can understand them with the Holy Spirit at work, who gives us the mind of Christ. So this is where we learn the deep things of God as we have the Holy Spirit within us and depend on him to teach us. Well, Corinthian goes on to say that we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit from God so we can understand all that God has given us. Think about that. The spirit helps us, explains things to us, is with us, teaches us. The very teaching the Apostle Paul was sharing was a byproduct of what he was taught by the spirit. The Spirit was using spiritual words to teach spiritual truth. Now, Paul, at, during that day, may have been criticized for not using the philosophy speak of his day. Paul's source of his teaching was the Holy Spirit. And through the Holy Spirit, he had the mind of Christ. So verse 14, all the way up, we're almost done here. We are told that the person without the Spirit does not accept the truth about God and his Son. It sounds like foolishness to them. The problem is they do not have the Spirit of God and so do not have spiritual discernment. They do not have the mind of Christ. So it sounds foolish to them. Next in verse 15, this is a harder one to understand. Let me read it through. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things. But such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. That sounds like a brain teaser to me. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about that just for a minute. Having the Spirit of God gives us a discernment the world at large does not have. Now, with this discernment, we have access to wisdom to write judgments, write according to God. Now, a non-believer doesn't have the spiritual authority to judge the Christian and spiritual matters because they do not have the Spirit, so they cannot know. And how can the unbeliever judge a believer's faith in salvation through Christ? They would be judging the Lord's wisdom. Pretty serious matter. Mm -hmm. Verse 16, our key verse then, for who has the mind of the Lord as to instruct him? You know, we cannot expect unbelievers to understand our commitment to Christ. We live in such different worlds than they do. Different mindsets, different worldviews. Then it goes on to say, but we have the mind of Christ. The we is those who have believed in Christ as their Lord and Savior and have received the Holy Spirit. 
Now, none of us can fully comprehend God. Of course not. But through the Holy Spirit, we can have a relationship with God. We can get to know him and his son, Jesus, through the Bible, through prayer. What then does it mean to have the mind of Christ? One Bible scholar really made it so clear and was such a great definition. I just want to share it with everyone. To have the mind of Christ means to look at life from the Savior's point of view, having his values and desires in mind. It means to think God's thoughts and not to think as the world thinks. Isn't that good? It's a really good. Really good definition of it. And boy, do we need the mind of Christ today. It means we need the Savior's point of view on life. Mm -hmm. We have to have his values and his desires in mind in all that we do. It means to think God's thoughts and not to pick up what the world is trying to tell us and think and telling us what to think. We have to think with the mind of Christ, what God has said. You know, Bill, there's so many verses in the Bible that talk about the mind. If you just look up that, you see so many of them. But just to name a few here, um, Matthew 23 talks about loving God with all your mind. How can we do that unless we have the mind of Christ? 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, Take every thought captive and make them obedient to Christ. The only way we can do that is by having the mind of Christ. Our thoughts are, be to, are to be captivated on what God thinks, what God says, what God desires. 2 Timothy 1.7 We have been given a sound mind, not one of fear. Timothy was really struggling, I think, with fears, and we all do. But God has given us a sound mind, and the sound mind that we have is the mind of Christ. When we can turn to him... And through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we can have peace where it is a fearful situation. That's having the mind of Christ. And then one of my favorite verses from Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing perfect will. So in other words, what happens is um, we're we're being transformed through the presence of the Holy Spirit as the mind of Christ starts to work with our mind. And our mind then is not no longer a mind in the world, but a renewing of our mind that is living. So for the Savior's point of view, we're living in his values, his desires in mind. It means that we're starting to think God's thoughts and not as the world thinks. Thinks That's renewing of our mind. And the promise with that is that then we're going to be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing perfect will. How can we know what God's will is without the mind of Christ, without our mind being transformed by the presence of Christ's mind within us. And we find Christ's mind in his word. You, that We can never say that enough. You know, are you in the word? Are you really seeking the mind of Christ in your situation? This is a good news moment, uh, Bev, as we talk about having the mind of Christ. And if you feel frustrated because you don't understand God's word, have you made that step of faith? Have you placed your... Uh, faith and trust in Jesus as your Savior and Lord, because uh, in order to have the mind of Christ, you first must have saving faith in Christ.
and then after your salvation, uh, as a believer, you will live under the guidance of the Holy Spirit and under God's influence, and the Holy Spirit will indwell within you and will give you this beautiful wisdom, this mind of Christ that Bev's been talking about today. Yeah, and not only that, the the Spirit has promised that He will never leave us. Mm-hmm. He's our seal and guarantee of eternal life. So you may be in a tough situation right now where you really need the mind of Christ. Just trust that He's there. Um, you're never going to feel adequate and like in every situation. So this this is such good news, such hope, such strength for the people of God to know that they have the mind of Christ. Let's live it. Let's act on that truth. And Bev, not to mention that your mind is going to be uh, renewed on a daily basis. God was going to give you the renewing of your mind. Yeah, that's quite a promise too, isn't it? It's a great promise. And we need our mind renewed. I want my mind yeah. to be in a constant state of be, being renewed. <laughs> like hourly. Yeah, because I want to follow. I want to know what his will is. So many people are, what's God's will? What's God's will? Well, we need to think with the mind of Christ. We need to have that renewed mind in in Christ in order to be able to test what is his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Mm-hmm. That's the mind of Christ. Mm-hmm. And just to think of the perspective that Jesus had with his humility and his compassion and his desire to be prayerful. If you have the mind of Christ, you will become more humble and obedient and compassionate and prayerful. Absolutely. And that's a wonderful thing. It's following our Savior. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But just take that promise today, people. Just take it. Yeah. It is a a good news moment. Uh, If you have never made a decision to give your life to Jesus... Uh, October 18th, 2021 could be your exact day where you place your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and know that by asking him to come into your life and be your savior and you repent of your sins, you will be starting your beautiful journey of new life in him. And you will, um, as a result, start um, understanding through the infusing of the Holy Spirit into your life, that mind of Christ that Bev has been talking about today. Good. Thank you, Bill. Yeah. Such a privilege to talk about this topic. I, it's one that I have, you know, just meditated on for decades, and it's really fun to share it with your listeners. It is fun for me to talk about it, and I know that's why we do uh, the program, is to help people come to saving faith in Christ. So mm-hmm. this is a great, great conversation. Bev, thank you so much for being on the show today. Always good to talk to you. My joy. Thank you so much. Beverly Canaris has been... My guest will take a little break, and when we come back, I'm going to have a conversation with Dr. Greg Ten Elshoff. He's written a book called For Shame, Rediscovering the Virtues of a Maligned Emotion. I'm going to find this probably interesting because uh, he's a philosopher at Biola University, and he's probably going to be really smart. So I'm going to <laughs> find out some interesting things about shame. That's all coming up next. Let's get it started. 
Have you no shame? Then you might have a problem. Um, for shame uh, is the name of Dr. Greg Ten Elshoff's, Elshoff's book. I hope I'm saying that right. I'm going to ask him. Greg, am I, I've already butchered your name once. You're perfect. Oh, okay, good. And tell me, where is that name come from? It's Dutch. Dutch, okay. Uh, yeah. I want to hear you say it. Ten Elshoff. Ten Elshoff. Okay, then I did say it right. Yeah, and, you got it. Yeah, and your book, For Shame, uh, you trace uh, the positive role shame can play in contributing to a well-ordered society, and you distinguish shame from embarrassment and guilt and shows that while casting off unhealthy shame is always positive, a proper understanding of shame and how it functions in society can better cultivate virtues of decency, self-respect, and dignity. I find that fascinating. Well, I'm glad. I find it fascinating, too. Yeah. And I got to tell you, you're a philosopher from Biola, and philosophers make me a little nervous just because you guys are so smart. Oh, no. Well, don't be nervous. <laughs> <laughs> if it makes you feel any better, we're really terrible at being on the radio. <laughs> that, so. that does make me feel better. That does. <laughs> so um, help me understand uh, this idea of, of people that say they have no shame, that they might have a problem. Yeah, so the book, the book really um, got started for me with an interest in uh, Confucianism. I took up an interest in um, classical Chinese uh, wisdom traditions a while ago. And as most people are aware, those are shame-honor um, uh, systems. So both shame and honor have important uh, roles to play in the development of healthy persons and psychologies in those classical Eastern wisdom traditions. But the more I got into it, the more I realized that uh, shame and honor ha- have an important role to play in, in classical Western philosophical traditions, too. <clears throat> and uh, so, so it turns out shame and honor are sort of all over the place once you start looking at the history of philosophy. And yet there's a growing body of uh, literature that uh, is decidedly anti-shame today that, uh, that has um, ruled that sh- shame is a, is a toxic emotion and that we would do well to, to be rid of it altogether. And so the book just tries to uh, uh, take a look at shame, try to get uh, very clear on what it is, and try to articulate why it is that the, the great human wisdom traditions down through the ages have thought that it had a, an important role to play in human development. And Greg, in your book, you talk about there's uh, an, uh, a lot of psychological research that indicates that shame correlates with uh, unhealthy states and postures, things like eating disorders, anxiety, depression, while guilt does not. Would you say more about that? Yeah, that's that's in many ways what's driving the anti-shame uh, literature, and it's understanding that it would, it's understandable that it would. I mean, there's this this massive and growing body of empirical research that, as you say, correlates felt shame with all kinds of things that we should um, we should lament: anxiety, depression, suicide, eating disorders, and the like. And so, if you're if you're like me and and you're noticing that shame has been widely thought for all of human history to have important work to do, and yet the contemporary empirical science is correlating it with all of this dysfunction, then that there's a kind of puzzle there, and, and you want to figure out what's going on. And and when I looked at it, what I found is that uh, the psychological research that is correlating shame with all of this dysfunction 
is not distinguishing shame from other related uh, negative emotions like uh, self-loathing and self low self-esteem and felt worthlessness. And so what's happening in the psychological literature is that uh, a lot of uh, uh, self-loathing and felt worthlessness is being picked up and confused with shame and then unsurprisingly being correlated with dysfunction. So we've always known that low self-esteem is bad for you. We've always known that felt worthlessness is bad for you. And if you've confused shame with those experiences, then you're almost guaranteed to conclude that shame is bad for you, that we've got to be rid of it. So maybe we can talk about healthy shame, because it seems like we're trying to eliminate shame in our society for good. And I don't think, and I would agree that you would probably say that that is not a good thing. Yeah, right. Yeah, so it's a, it's kind of a strange thing to talk about uh, healthy shame because shame is a, it's a painful emotion. Nobody should want to experience shame, but it can be helpful to think about other um, uh, painful negative emotions. Think about, for example, loneliness. Nobody, nobody that I know wants to be lonely, but we all recognize that loneliness is, is sort of your, your soul's way of alerting you to the fact that you're without companionship. So if you're, if you're alone, if you're really alone, and you don't feel the pain of that, you don't feel lonely, then something's gone wrong. Something in your, something in your emotional life isn't responding to the way things are. Or if, you, if, you, um, if someone's betrayed you and you don't feel betrayal, then again, something's gone wrong. Your emotions aren't tracking the way things are. And what I've argued is, is that shame is the same way. It's a, it's, a, it's a negative and painful emotion that nobody should want to have. But if you've been shamed, if you've lost status in communities that matter to you, if you've been dishonored, if you've been diminished in community, and you don't feel the sting of that, you don't feel shame, something's wrong. Your emotions aren't tracking uh, the way things are. I can think back to a time when a gentleman would divert their attention if there was a situation where there was a woman in compromise. Uh, and that would be a polite thing. And now, instead of diverting their attention, they'll pull out their phone and film it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the things, one way to to um, to get hold of the the positive valuation of uh, shame, I think, is to think about shamelessness. So, what you're describing is a kind of uh, rise of shamelessness mm-hmm. in culture. And most people that I know would not find it. Uh, complimentary. They, w- they wouldn't think you were complimenting them if you called them shameless. We, we think shamelessness is a vice. But if you think about it, if shamelessness is a vice, that means there are some circumstances where shame is the right thing to feel. Just like if if fearlessness, you know, fearlessness is being without fear when uh, fear would be the natural thing to feel. Shamelessness is being without shame where shame would be the natural thing to feel. And historically, uh, public nakedness, for example, is um, uh, is is cause for shame, whether it's your own nakedness or the nakedness of someone else. And so that's why we have this very natural tendency to avert our eyes to what you call compromise or public nakedness or mm-hmm. anything uh, like that. And if you've lost that, if if uh, Jared, the prophet Jeremiah calls this uh, the the inability to blush, there are people who've lost their ability to blush. They they don't feel shame um, when when confronted with truly shameful circumstances. 
That's funny you say that, uh, Greg, because I was talking to a younger kid who blushed, and I thought, boy, that's a beautiful thing. Yeah, uh, right. That you still can blush, and you that's your blush. organic response. Um, Greg, yeah. talk, talk about how shame is contagious. Yeah, good. This is one of the things that, that um, really, that a lot of times it's hard to distinguish between shame and guilt because uh, sometimes we feel shame because of something that we've done wrong. And so we're both guilty and, um, and experiencing shame. But, but guilt, you might notice if you think about it, is, is something that you can only bring on yourself. You, you could never be guilty for anything that anybody else has done. Um, and this is where, where shame is quite different. Uh, if shame is just the loss of social standing, the loss of honor in a community, you can lose shame. You can lose uh, public standing because of something you've done. Maybe you've done something shameful or fallen into some terrible sin or something. Um, and then you'll lose standing in community, but you can also lose standing in community because of what something else, what someone else has done. So for example, if my father is caught, in some kind of um, gross moral sin, I won't be guilty, uh, but I will experience shame. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll be a person of lesser consequence in communities that matter to me uh, because of what my father has done. So, so it turns out that that shame is the kind of thing you can you can catch by association. You can you can never catch guilt by association with someone, but if you're if you're if you're uh, closely associated with somebody who's fallen into shame you'll fall into shame, too. I mean, we all sort of learn this pretty quickly in junior high. You know, <laughs> if, some, yeah. if, if somebody's uh, losing social standing, you want to go sit at the other table because that's contagious. Yeah, please don't jolt me back into junior high right now. <laughs> Dr. Greg Tanelzoff is my guest. He's written a book called For Shame, Rediscovering the Virtues of a Maligned Emotion. Um, in your book, you point out in John chapter 9, Jesus heals the blind man, and both the blind man and his parents sort of had to grapple with the shame that accompanied close association with Jesus. His parents simply couldn't bring themselves to tell the religious elite who it was that had healed their son for fear of the shame that would result. Yeah, and, and what's so uh, beautiful about the blind man is that uh, it, uh, he was, I think I put it in the book, he was made of sturdier stuff. You know, he, right. he, was, willing, he was willing just to say, I, I'm with him. Uh, he, he healed me. Uh, say what you like about him. And, um, but it is true. It, uh, shame is the sort of thing that you can fall into. Sometimes we fall into shame because we've done something terrible. But sometimes we fall into shame because we've done something great. Uh, uh, because shame, again, is just that, that position of having lost social status, having been dishonored in community. And, if, and if, if you exist in a community that detests the way of Jesus and you associate closely with Jesus, then you'll be shamed in that community as a consequence. And there again, if your emotions aren't tra if, you, if you don't feel the pain of that, then your emotions aren't tracking the realities on the ground. And we, we see that in, in, um, in places where conversion to the way of Jesus comes at uh, serious cost. Uh, you, you think of conservative uh, Muslim communities or something like that. To, to give yourself to Jesus publicly is to subject yourself to a pretty thoroughgoing um, shame. And, uh, and again, uh, if you don't feel that, 
something something's broken something's wrong mm-hmm. greg i'd love for you to talk about shame and embarrassment um i would think those are a couple of emotions that are easy to confuse yeah right so um, it, it, they are easy to confuse because they often go together um if you experience shame uh, again you'll you'll experience yourself as having lost standing in community and and that'll make you want to disappear right i mean if you're if you're if you're being derided in in community if people are thinking of you uh um as a person of lesser consequence what you want to do is disappear and get out of sight and that's exactly the way we feel when we're embarrassed when when we um when we stumble over our own two feet in public or something we just want to get out of sight we want to get out of out of uh, out of view and so the the way to think about it is like this uh, embarrassment is just uh the discomfort that we can feel with the attention of other people so when you're uncomfortable because you're being attended to by other people you're experiencing discomfort or you're experiencing embarrassment, sorry. And and that almost always goes together with shame. But notice you can also be, you can be embarrassed not only when you're shamed, but when you're honored. So if um, very often uh, people, especially people who, who don't like to be in front of crowds or whatever, when they're publicly and effusively honored, they often feel embarrassed and they blush, you know, and they, and they want to get out of sight. They want to get off the stage as quickly as possible. So embarrassment is just discomfort with the attention of other people. Shame is the pain of, of uh, being downgraded in, 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 in society. And those two things often go together, but as I say, they're not the same thing. Greg, do people who feel shame in those instances not feel worthy, or do they feel like they're not measuring up to the nice things being said about them? What do you think? I think even when um, I think all of those things can happen, but even if they do feel uh, worthy of the praise, they might just be, um, you know, because of temperament or personality or whatever, they might just be uncomfortable with attention. They might just feel like I just I don't like being uh, attended to. So I think. Um, yeah, I don't think it necessarily. Every time you're embarrassed, it doesn't mean that you're feeling unworthy. It just means that you're you're wanting to get out of sight, you know, for whatever mm-hmm. reason. Dr. Greg Ten Elzoff is my guest. He's written a book called uh, "For Shame: Rediscovering the Virtues of a Maligned Emotion," and he's uh, his last name is Dutch because I know a lot of people are curious. It's Dutch. All right, I'll take a short break and be right back. Dr. Greg Van Elshoff has written a book called For Shame, Rediscovering the Virtues of a Maligned Emotion. He is a um, uh, philosopher. So I want to spend the rest of this time, if you don't mind, Greg, talking about uh, shame and guilt. Uh, and I think you've got something to say as well about the idea of guilt by association. Yeah, so um, I think one of the easiest ways to, to understand shame is is by comparison with guilt, so by comparison comparing and contrasting it with guilt. Guilt is the more familiar emotion. And what we, what we probably recognize, if you think about it, is that guilt has both an objective and a subjective side. So the objective side, you're, you're, you're guilty 
when you've violated a standard. Uh, so you, you can be guilty of violating a moral standard or a standard of uh, conduct at work or uh, the rules of the game you're playing or whatever. But to be guilty is to violate a standard. And on the subjective side, the feeling of guilt comes when you think you violated a standard that you care about. So if you violated a standard and you know you have, but you don't care about it, you're not going to feel guilty. Mm-hmm. But if you think you violated a standard that you care about, then you'll have a, a painful emotion called guilt. And we all recognize you can be guilty without feeling guilty. You can feel guilty uh, even though you're not guilty. Um, so once you've got that structure in place, uh, you can see that shame works the same way. There's an objective and a subjective side. On the objective side, to, to, um, to be shamed to be subject to shame is to have lost social standing, to, to have sort of lost credit, lost social credit. It's the opposite of being honored. When you're honored, you're, you're, um, you pick up social credits, you're bumped up in society. And the feeling of shame, you'll feel shame, you'll have a painful felt emotion if you lose standing in a community that you care about. Uh, so just like you feel guilt when you violate a standard that you care about, you feel shame when you lose standing in a community community that you care about. So you can you can um, be subject to shame in a community and not feel any shame because you don't care about that community. Um, or you can lose, um, or you you know you can feel shame without uh, being shamed, and you can be shamed without feeling shame. Um, that's the idea. So I use an example of um, a. Uh, a white uh, prison inmate who kills his black celly in order to gain entrance into the Aryan Brotherhood, that person will be honored in the Aryan Brotherhood, right? They'll, they'll increase in standing with the Aryan Brotherhood. They'll be honored there, but they'll be shamed in the wider community of, you know, human persons will think this person of lesser consequence for having done what they've done. And whether they'll feel honored or feel shame will depend on which community they care about. If they really care about the Aryan Brotherhood, they're going to feel honored, even though they're shamed in human society. If what they really care about is human society, then they're going to feel shame, even though they've been honored in the Aryan Brotherhood. Okay, this is uh, a little heady, but I think I've been following (laughs) all of it. Um, But I can see how quickly people can be tormented by shame, especially if they feel like they've lost face among their community, something that they maybe have spent decades or their whole life trying to win and gain the approval of of certain groups. That's exactly right. It turns out we're we're really bad at maintaining our own sense of self-worth when we think that the people we care about don't see us as worthy. So... um, Though felt worthlessness is not the same thing as shame, it it follows very easily on the heels of shame. So if if um, uh, this this is why, for example, when um, when victims of abuse or when people with um, with visible um, uh, impairments suffer shame in society, right? So people with people with certain impairments are. It's, it's a deplorable thing to notice, but it's unquestionably true. They're thought of as people of lesser consequence because of their visible impairments. And if their emotions are tracking things, then they feel the pain of that. They feel the shame of being uh, thought of as a person of lesser consequence. And uh, 
it, it'll be just as natural as anything for them to start thinking less of themselves, uh, to, to start feeling worthless themselves. And so one of the um, one of the things I want to say in the book is that when when people are experiencing shame because they're victims of abuse or because they have visible impairments or what have you, what we don't want to do is tell them that this feeling that they're having is somehow toxic or dysfunctional. It's not. Their their feeling is just tracking the reality. What's what needs changing is not the feeling that they're having. What needs changing is the fact that they're being downgraded for the reason that they are a victim of abuse or they're being downgraded for the reason that they have a visible impairment. That, that's the problem. And we take our eyes off the problem if we start focusing on this feeling that they have, which is perfectly natural given what's happened to them. Mm-hmm. Greg, you say in your book, if someone you love feels guilty for something they've done and you want to help, don't try to disable their ability to feel guilt. Instead, give them ideas for how to make apology and reparation for what they've done. Help them forge a path in the direction of reconciliation. That's right. And so then I want to say the, the same thing about guilt. If, if somebody you love is feeling shame, and it's not because of some shameful thing that they've done, maybe it's because they're a victim of abuse or they have an impairment or what, or they, they have a father who's blown it or whatever, if somebody you love is feeling shame, what you don't want to do is try, try, to, try to make them immune to the feeling of shame. What you want to do is bring them honor. Uh, just like if you have somebody who's lonely because they don't have companionship, you don't, want to, you don't want to solve that problem by making them incapable of feeling loneliness. What you want to do is you want to solve that problem by bringing companionship to them. Uh, so these, these negative emotions like felt loneliness, felt betrayal, guilt, uh, shame, these are all sort of important warning systems that we have. We want, we want to be warned when we're, when we're without companionship. We want to be warned when our, our relationships don't exhibit fidelity. And we want to be warned when we're losing connection and standing in society. And shame is the, the negative and painful feeling that warns us that we're losing connection in society. Greg, in your book, you uh, talk about private shaming. Uh, what is that? Yeah, so in, in the book, um, it, it's a part of this section where, where I want to I head off this idea that um, once you recognize that shame has important work to do, that, that uh, it's, it's an emotion that's appropriate in some circumstances, you might think, well, then what we need to, what we need to do is start shaming people more. <laughs> you know, we need, to start, we need to start causing people to feel shame who've done shameful things. And what I argue in the book is that actually our... our um, the, the current cultural climate has things exactly backward. We, we seem to be really suspicious of the negative emotion of shame. We think it's toxic and so forth. But we're increasingly accepting of, even embracing of shaming as an activity for, um, you know, bringing off our favorite social cause mm-hmm. or whatever. And what I argue in the book is that that's exactly backwards. We should be less suspicious of shame. Shame is just like uh, guilt or betrayal or loneliness, uh, any other negative emotion that, that warns us that something's off. We should be less suspicious of shame, and we should be more suspicious of shaming because it's almost impossible to shame someone uh, as an act of love. Um, you can, you can, sometimes we put people on a guilt trip 
and it's an act of love. You know, they've done something wrong and they're not feeling guilty. And we, we, we help them into this feeling <laughs> that they should be having by giving them a guilt trip. But shaming someone, causing them to be um, dishonored in public is almost never an act of love. And shame and honor uh, go back as far as this uh, Adam and Eve story, doesn't it? That's right. I, th- I think um, it's, it's, a, uh, it's an integral part of the fall that we often um, neglect. And because it's an integral part of the fall, it's an integral part of the incarnation and the atonement. And so w- once, you, once you start thinking in categories of shame and honor. Oh, no, we just lost Greg. In what's happening oh, with back. Uh, uh, Christ's incarnation, what's happening on the cross, what it means to minister the gospel, all of these things uh, take on a slightly different um, hue when you're looking at them through the lens of shame and honor. Yeah, Greg, so interesting. Thank you so much for um, coming on the show today. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, and you're much better on radio than you think. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, have a good one. You bet. Dr. Greg Ten-Elzoff has been my guest, and his book is called For Shame, Rediscovering the Virtues of a Maligned Emotion. Hey, that's our show for the day. Thanks to everyone who uh, made it what it was, and I hope you have a great night, and I look forward to our time tomorrow. See you then. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.